right, so in our last study of the Gospel of John, we read about certain men who had the awesome privilege, the life-changing privilege of meeting the Lord Jesus Christ. They're known as the first disciples, and their names were John, the author of the gospel that we're studying, Andrew, his friend, Peter, Andrew's brother, and then Philip. So how exciting it must have been, right, for these four guys to actually meet the Messiah, and how thrilling it must have been for Philip to hear that Messiah actually say to him, Philip, hey, Philip, hey, follow me. Now, any Jew who knew the Hebrew scriptures, we call it the Old Testament, they knew that there are lots of prophecies in the Old Testament that point to a future coming Messiah. These guys knew that. And so they're blown away by the fact that this Messiah is here, the one who fulfilled all the prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures. He's here. And Philip heard him say, follow me. Philip was so impacted by Jesus, he had to tell somebody, all right? And so who did Philip tell? Well, right now, if you're looking at chapter one, verse 44, can you say amen? Verse 44. You say, why verse 44? Uh, because two weeks ago, we stopped at verse 43. And so what's what we do here? We just go verse by verse. And so verse 44. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found, can you guys please shout out his name? Nathaniel. So Philip, so impacted by Jesus, he goes, <clears throat> he finds Nathaniel. By the way, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, call him Bartholomew. John calls him Nathaniel. So Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law, that's Old Testament, and also the prophets, that's Old Testament, wrote. Who's that? Jesus of Nazareth. I'll come back to the word Nazareth, the city of Nazareth where Jesus grew up in a minute. But Jesus of Nazareth, the son of who? The son of Joseph. All right, so Philip was so excited, right, about meeting the one who fulfilled the messianic prophecies, fulfilling the prophecies of who the Messiah is. He's so excited about meeting the Messiah, he's got to share the good news with somebody. So he, Philip, goes and finds Nathaniel. I said it a couple uh, weeks ago, but man, if you've encountered the Lord Jesus Christ, you want other people to meet him. It's just what happens. And that's exactly what it says in our text. Philip found Nathanael. And what does he say to his friend? He says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. All right, so the reference to Joseph, of course, is to Jesus's adoptive father. So when Mary gave birth to Jesus about 30 years prior to where we are in the Bible, she was a virgin, and then after the virgin birth of the Christ child, Joseph raised that child as his own, even though Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. And so after the Lord's birth, so Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary, but then after the Lord's birth, Joseph and Mary consummated their marriage, and Mary gave birth uh, to 
uh, sons and daughters, these would be the half-brothers, the little half-brothers and little half-sisters of Jesus. You can read about them in Matthew chapter 13. So as far as we can tell, Joseph passes away, and he passes away sometime in between the time that Jesus is 12 years old. Do you guys remember the story? When Jesus was 12 years old, somehow Mary and Joseph lost Jesus. I don't know how you lose Jesus, but they lost him. Do you guys remember where they found him? In the temple, what was he doing? He was teaching, right, and uh, listening to the teachers of the law. They're all blown away by the biblical knowledge of 12-year-old Jesus. Mary and Joseph find him, all right, so sometime between that uh, event that Luke writes about in his gospel and the time when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus and Jesus starts his public ministry, sometime in between uh, those two events, Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, passes away. He trained Jesus up as a carpenter, and um, Jesus, in his 20s, takes over that business, but now he has started his public ministry. But back to Philip, Philip says to Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. All right, so let's see how Nathaniel responds to the Messiah coming from Nazareth, all right? So please look at verse 46 now in your Bible. It says that Nathaniel said to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And by the way, that's pretty blunt, right? We're gonna find out that's the kind of guy Nathaniel was. He was just a straight shooter. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And so we know from chapter 21, verse two, that Nathanael was from Cana of Galilee. Cana of Galilee was not too far from Nazareth of Galilee where Jesus grew up. So Nathanael grows up in Cana, Jesus grows up in Nazareth, the cities are pretty, the towns are pretty close to each other. So Nathanael knew all about Nazareth, he knew the reputation that that town had, and what was his opinion? His opinion was, can anything good come from that town? Right, so he's blunt, he's straightforward. Nathaniel's the kind of guy who just tells it like it is. I'm wondering, is anybody in the room, do you, do you guys know anybody who's blunt? Let me see your hand if you know someone who's blunt, a straight shooter, is anybody uh, like that in the room? You say, I'm blunt, I'm a straight shooter as well. Okay, so we have lots of Nathaniels in the room. How's that working out for you, by the way? <laughs> sometimes good, sometimes bad, right? But, but here's my opinion. My opinion is that people uh, who tell you like it is, they're actually a breath of fresh air. Maybe not? I think so. I think so. I'm not saying being rude. What I'm saying is all of us need somebody in our lives who's just gonna tell us like it is. Ladies and gentlemen, listen. People who are candid, people who tell it like it is, they're awesome, why? Because I'd rather have somebody tell me like it is so I can change and grow than have somebody always trying to appease me. You know what I'm saying? You don't need somebody in your life that's always trying to appease you. And so when people only tell you what you wanna hear as opposed to what you need to hear, what good is that? And so we need some people in our lives, again, I'm not endorsing being rude at all, 
but we need some people in our lives who just have that liberty to tell it like it is. And apparently the Lord likes this about Nathaniel. Why? Well, Jesus knew the reputation that the town that he grew up in had. Um, Nathaniel didn't do anything wrong here. He's just telling it like it is, right? All right, so let's see how Jesus responds to him. Please now look at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him, and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no, what's the word there? Deceit. All right, so Jesus Christ, who knew the hearts of all people, sees Nathanael approaching him, and he, who has x-ray vision, he sees right into Nathanael's heart, and he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Some of your translations, no guile, no pretense, no fakeness. Again, Nathaniel is a straight shooter. Nathaniel's a guy who doesn't sugarcoat things in order to make you feel good so that he can get something from you later. Can we just talk about this for a minute? Because this is what some of us sometimes do because we want to get something from somebody, so what do we do? We butter them up. We flatter them, right? But all along, God knows our heart because our motivation all along is what can I get from you? That's not right. And so my encouragement this morning is can we please in this church have some more Nathaniels? Can we please in this church have people who are real and not fake? People who love people just so they can be a blessing to that person as opposed to loving them so you can get something from them. Does that make sense? So let's do that. Let's just do that. Let's just be real. Not rude, but real. And so indeed, he says, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now that comment startles Nathaniel. And it says now, in verse 48, he's gonna respond. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So one of the divine attributes of Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, is fully God and fully man, is his omniscience, omniscience. So you have, right, you guys know this, omnipotence, all-powerful. Omnipresent, everywhere at the same time. Omniscient, what does that mean? Christ knows all and sees all. And I love the fact that he's also omnibenevolent, he's all-loving. And so Jesus Christ knows all and he sees all, that is what this passage is teaching. And so not only could Nathaniel, not only could Jesus see straight into Nathaniel's heart, right? Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. Not only can he see into his heart, Jesus could also see where Nathaniel had been earlier that day. I saw you when you were under the fig tree. So it's obvious from Nathaniel's response in the very next verse that there's no way that Jesus could ever have known these things about him. You'll see that in a minute by how Nathaniel responds. In other words, how in the world could Jesus know that Nathaniel was a straight shooter? He had never even met Nathaniel. How in the world could Jesus have known that Nathaniel was earlier that day under a fig tree 
Apparently, that was a private place that only Nathaniel knew about. And so here's what we need to know about the Lord. The Lord, Jesus Christ, he knows all and he sees all. And by the way, Jesus can see straight into our hearts as well. Right here and right now. He sees right into my heart. He knows what I've been going through, what I'm struggling with, what I'm dealing with. He sees right into your heart as well. And not only that, not only can he see into our hearts, he also knows where we've been. Now, if you're a Christian and that causes you to come under some conviction, right? Like, oh no, he sees in my heart. I know what's in my heart. Oh no, he sees where I've been. I know where I've been. If that's you, I have some good news for you. And you don't have to turn there. I'm actually gonna read it to you. It's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Did you know the same John who wrote the gospel also wrote a few little letters at the end of the New Testament? And in 1 John chapter two, verse one, he says, my little children, he's talking to Christians, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. How many of you guys understand God hates sin? Right, God doesn't wink at sin, he hates sin. And so, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, let me ask real quick, take a pause here. How many sinners do we have in the house? Please raise your hand. Oh, okay, so 20% of you are Pharisees? Let me ask that again. How many sinners, please raise your hand, do we have in the house? I'll raise two, right, like I always do. All right, so I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, good news, we have an advocate. What does the word advocate mean? It means a defense attorney. That means we have somebody who's gonna stand up for us. So, do we deserve it, by the way, yes or no? No. We're talking grace here. We're talking love here. We're talking about the heart of God here. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Don't be thrown off by that large theological term, the word propitiation. All it means is that Christ has appeased God's justice by his atoning sacrifice. And so we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's a propitiation for our sins, not ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. And so when I asked how many sinners we have in the house, I think every single hand went up. Well, here's the good news. And no, I'm not teaching. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, God forbid, I'm not teaching that at all. But here's what I know, we all sin. And there's good news, Jesus Christ is our defense attorney. And here's what he says. He says, I paid the price for their sin. I, as the spotless lamb of God, no one took my life from me. I went willingly to the cross and I allowed them to pound spikes into my hands and into my feet. And I allowed them to lift me up on the cross and I allowed myself to bleed out. 
in paying for their sin because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And I died, why? Because the wages of sin, help me out, is what? Death. And so we don't have to die and we don't have to go to hell. Jesus Christ died in our place and then he rose from the grave three days later and now he is, for those who have turned to him in repentance and faith, he is our advocate in the presence of the Father. And what does he do when we turn to him? He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And so now we stand before God, not clothed in our self-righteousness, we stand in God's presence, clothed in Christ's righteousness, and God says, I accept you. There is no better news than that right there. God accepts you, sinner, me, sinner. Why? Because of what Jesus did for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so, yeah, we should thank the Lord. Let's just thank him one more time. I think people wanna thank him for this. I'll thank him too. Thank you, God. Now, if you're not a Christian, right, we're just gonna be real. We're not gonna be fake. And maybe you're here and you say, I'm a skeptic, I'm an agnostic, I'm an atheist. I don't know if I believe. Well, listen, if, if you're understanding now, realizing that Jesus can see into your heart and that Jesus knows where you've been and you're starting to feel some conviction, don't put up the wall. It's a good thing. Listen, you can't get saved till you realize you're lost. And my encouragement is the kindness of God leads to repentance and so let yourself go to Jesus. Turn to him in repentance and faith. He's not doing this, he's doing this. He wants you. Turn to him in repentance and faith. Trust who he is, he's the eternal son of God. Trust what he did for you. He paid for your sins on the cross and rose again. And receive him as the savior and lord of your life. John 1:12. we already covered this a few weeks ago, but John uh, chapter one, verse 12 says that as many as received him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is what we preach in this church. We preach the love, grace, goodness, and forgiveness of God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. That's what we do. Now, Nathaniel knows that Jesus is omniscient. (laughs) And how does he respond? Look at verse 49. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God and you're the king of Israel. Wow, what a response. Didn't take long for Nathaniel. That's quick. And so why? Why is it so quick? Well, it's my opinion, you guys heard me say opinion, right? That earlier that day, Nathaniel was praying and meditating underneath the fig tree. And while he was praying and meditating under the fig tree, it's my opinion that he probably prayed that the Lord would reveal himself to him and then he met Jesus. Now someday when we get to heaven, we'll watch the movie, we'll see exactly what happened. (laughs) But that's my best guess. However it went down, he's moved to his core. You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Look how Jesus responds to him in verse 50. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? (laughs) 
you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the, can you guys finish that? Son of man, son of man. All right, so Jesus' reply was a reference to Genesis 12. And in that passage, God reveals himself to Jacob. And what does God do? God confirms what Pastor Will talked about. By the way, I thank God for our pastoral staff that whenever I'm not preaching, they come and they really are prepared and they rightly handle the word of truth. Can we thank Pastor Will, God, guys, for that message last week? And one of the things that he talked about was the Abrahamic covenant. So what did, what did God do? God, in Genesis chapter 20, Genesis 12, he confirms with Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. All right, so here it is. It says that Jacob dreamed, and behold, there was a, please shout out the word, that can also be translated as staircase. So there was a ladder, a staircase set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. On what? On the ladder. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of who? Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So God, in Genesis 12, gives Jacob an amazing revelation in which he confirms that the Messiah is going to one day come through, the, um, through Jacob's offspring, and that through that Messiah, all the families of the earth would be blessed. I love what Matthew Henry had to say about that passage right there. He said, quote, Christ is the great blessing of the world. By the way, don't you wish the world knew this? Christ is the great blessing of the world. All that are blessed, whatever family they are of, are blessed in him. And none of any family are excluded from the blessedness in him, but those that exclude themselves. And so I wanna, just wondering, uh, by raising of hand, how many of you guys have been blessed by the Messiah, Jesus Christ? Again, I wanna raise two hands now, right? So all of us, we're a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. We've been blessed by the Messiah. And so in his reply, stay with me here, but in his reply to Nathaniel, what does Jesus do? Jesus reaches back to Genesis chapter 12 and he takes the revelation via a dream that God gave to Jacob and Jesus links himself with that divine revelation. What does he say in verse 51? Look at it again. Truly, truly, I say to you, you're gonna see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on a ladder on a stairway, is that what it says? No, the, the angels of God are ascending and descending on, can you please shout out the rest of the verse? The son of man, the, the term son of man, thank you Daniel, the term son of man is a title, an Old Testament title of the Messiah. So why did the Messiah come? Ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to me right now, say amen here. Why did he come? 
Here's one of the reasons he came. He came to be the ladder. He came to be the stairway in between earth and heaven. Jesus Christ came to be the way of access between us and the Father. Jesus said it. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that's what we believe in this church. There's one way to heaven. Jesus. Praise God for Jesus. And now he's about to do a miracle in chapter two at a wedding in a town called Cana. Chapter two, verse one. On the third day, scholars think that's the third day after he revealed himself to Nathaniel, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. So Mary's there. Verse two, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so Jesus and his disciples, okay, not all 12 at this point, it's too early for that. So we're talking about Jesus and his disciples. John, the author of the gospel we're studying, Andrew, Peter, Philip, now Nathaniel, Jesus, and Jesus' mom Mary are all invited to this wedding in Cana. And by the way, let me just say this, quick side note, I love the fact that this couple, we don't know their names, they're unnamed in chapter two, but this couple that's getting married, I love the fact that they invited Jesus to their wedding ceremony. I love that. And let me just say that if you're wanting to get married in the future, I hope you're gonna welcome Jesus to your wedding ceremony. I hope that while you're getting married, you'll make a big deal about Jesus being there by his Holy Spirit. I, I, I hope that you ask for his blessing on your wedding. But don't stop there, okay? Because here's what I know. So many couples, they put so much time and planning and, 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 and effort into their wedding day, so much into that one day, and so little time and effort and planning into a life of being married. And so great, invite Jesus to your wedding ceremony, ask for his blessing, but don't stop there. More important, build your marriage every day on the Lord Jesus Christ. Build your marriage on him, build your marriage on his principles. There's, there's so many principles in the Bible about what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife. Study those things, ask the Holy Spirit to empower you Guys, to be the husband that he wants you to be. Ladies, to be the wife that he wants you to be. Because it takes three for there to be an awesome marriage. And I'm so glad, yeah, we should clap for that too, thank God, right? I'm, I'm personally so grateful that God has blessed me with a, a woman who in June, it'll be 33 years she has put up with me. So <laughs> praise God for my wife. Praise God for his grace, right, in my life. And I know many of you who are married have the same type of testimony, but back to the wedding, everybody's having a great time until something really embarrassing happens. They run out of wine. Now, this would have been especially, this news would have been especially mortifying for the groom and his family. 
Why? Because in that culture, it was the groom's responsibility to make sure that there was enough food and drink for the celebration. Apparently, Mary is a friend of the family. She's there, she's helping out. And when she hears the news, there's no more wine, her heart sinks. She knows in that culture, you know, this is gonna cause embarrassment for years to come for this couple. And so her heart sinks, she's sad. And then all of a sudden, she has the thought, wait a minute, Jesus is here. Right? Jesus is here. And so now let's pick up the story in verse three. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her in verse four, woman, I hear some snickers. (laughs) Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. (laughs) Now, some of you guys may be thinking, Jesus just called his mom woman. (laughs) Isn't that disrespectful? Well, here's what I know. In our culture and in our English language, yes, that's disrespectful, right? So guys, don't call your mom, hey, woman, you know, don't, you don't wanna do that. He didn't say, hey, woman, but, but here's what I know. In our language and culture, yes, it's disrespectful. In that language and culture, no. It's not disrespectful at all. Here's what we gotta remember. Number one, Jesus was sinless. (laughs) He never sinned one time. And then number two, Jesus absolutely loved and he respected his mom. And so as I dug into this, what I discovered is that it's very difficult to find an English word that is equivalent to this original word for woman as far as capturing all the cultural connotations of it, but some of the scholars came up with a word that they think is very close to what Jesus was saying, and that's the word ma'am. All right, so look back at verse four, please, with me. And Jesus said to her, ma'am, sounds better, right? What does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Ma'am, why are you involving me? Now, even though Mary raised Jesus, what we gotta understand is that at this point in his adult life, he is not under her authority. So Jesus is not gonna do something just because his mother is telling him to do it. I wanna stop here for a moment. I wanna think about this with with you. And I wanna point out this right here in John chapter five because later Jesus says this, look at this. I do not seek my own will but the will of, can you please shout out? The Father who sent me. I don't seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And so Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, but as a man, he had one question that he was primarily concerned with, and that is, what is my Father's will? Later on, he's gonna say this to the religious leaders. He says, when you have lifted me up, the son of, I'm sorry, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as who? The Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So what's your point, pastor? Here's my point. 
regarding whether or not Jesus should perform a miracle at this wedding, here's the thing, he wasn't primarily concerned about the will of his earthly mother, he was primarily concerned about the will of his heavenly father. Jesus is always concerned, what does the father want? And based on the authority of those two verses that I had up on the screen, we know for a fact that Jesus at some point in the narrative goes and spends some time in prayer to find out what the Father wants. Now some people believe we should pray to Mary. And some of those who believe we should pray to Mary, their thinking is this. Supposedly, they say, she has influence with her son and she may be able to persuade him to act on her on our behalf. And I would say, that's not true. Ladies and gentlemen, the Lord was about to perform a miracle here, not because his earthly mother had influence over him, he's about to perform a miracle here because his heavenly father has influence over him. And so with all due respect to Mary, even though she was blessed among women as the mother of the Messiah, we should not pray to Mary. So how should we pray? Well, here's a good general guideline we'll put up on the screen. Pray to the Father in the name of the Son and may your prayers be guided by the Holy Spirit. That's a New Testament-based statement right there, a truth. Right, now of course, if you privately wanna pray to any member of I'm sorry, if you, if you directly wanna pray to any member of the Trinity, that's, that's great. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but a good general principle is pray to the Father. That's what Jesus said, right? When you pray, pray, our Father who art in heaven. In the name of the Son, Jesus would teach, you know, when you ask things in my name. And then may your prayers be guided by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is our helper, he's our comforter, he is our guide. And so, here's a good question. Should we ever pray to anyone other than God? No, never. Never, ever, 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 ever. <laughs> only God, ladies and gentlemen, hear me. Only God can hear and understand and answer our prayers because only God is omniscient, all-knowing, and only God is omnipotent omnipotent, all-powerful. So the idea that Mary, right, can hear and comprehend and answer the prayers of thousands of people who are praying to her simultaneously, if we say that, then what we're saying is that she has divine, the divine attributes that only God has. But here's the thing, Mary's not omniscient and Mary is not omnipotent, only God is. And so, Here's the bottom line. There is nothing in the Bible about praying to Mary. And there's nothing in the Bible about praying to saints. And so here, here's what you gotta know about this church. Our, our, our church, our, this is what we believe, that our final authority for all matters of faith and practice is this book. And it's not in the book, so we shouldn't do it. What should we do? Pray to the Father, in the name of the Son, and may our prayers be guided by the Holy Spirit. Now having said all that, you gotta know Mary was a very wise woman, and that's seen now in verse five. Please look at verse five. His mother, 
said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I love that. Did you guys know, I just dawned on me this week, and I've been studying the Bible since I was 17 years old, but did you guys know that that is the last recorded phrase of Mary in the Bible? And it's filled with wisdom. Do whatever he tells you to do. I really believe that if if Mary somehow were here right now, she would be more passionate about this than I am. And she would say, please don't focus on me. Please focus on my son. And don't just focus on my son. Do whatever he tells you uh, to do. Can you imagine if the whole world took these words and applied them to their lives? Do whatever he tells you to do. How many of you guys know that we would live in a much better world if we took Mary's advice? How about us as individuals, if we all took what she said and applied it? Do whatever he tells you to do. I know for a fact we would be so blessed. And so yes, Mary is a wise woman and she tells the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you to do and now it's time for the miracle. Let's look at verse six. It says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. This is pretty big stone water jars. Verse seven, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Verse nine, and when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, right, because he's responsible, verse 10, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you, you've kept the good wine until now. Now, first thing I wanna say is, yay, Jesus saved the day. (laughs) And by the way, this miracle says a lot of things, and I could go on and on and on, but I I only have so much time, right? But here's at least two things that this miracle shows. Number one, it shows that Jesus Christ is all powerful because who other than God can turn water into wine? But not only that, it shows that Jesus cares. Why? Because he just saved this couple from years of embarrassment by giving them an awesome wedding gift. I'll say a number three thing, um, if Jesus can change water into wine, he can change your life too. Not into something adequate, but man, he can make the best you possible. I mean, literally, it could take us 10 years to get through John if I just stopped on each of these principles and preached sermons on each, <laughs> each and every principle, but we, we don't have time for that, right? But there's so much that you can glean out as you're meditating in the word of God. But it's very interesting, the master of the feast says to the groom in verse 10, please look at it again, everyone serves the good wine first, And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So what's going on here? Well, it's customary at some of these social events to serve the finest, most expensive wine first, and then after the senses of some in the crowd had been dulled uh, through overindulgence, 
at that point to serve out the inferior cheap wine. The idea here is that a host could get away with serving the cheap wine later because those who had too much to drink wouldn't even notice. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying this is what happened at some of these weddings. And so the master at this wedding, he's surprised. Mr. Groom, you kept the good wine until now. You saved the best for last. Now, because we're at Calvary Chapel, we can't skip over anything as we're going verse by verse. So I gotta deal with this, and we're almost done. But here's the thing. Whenever you tell this story, the topic always comes up. Did Jesus turn water into wine or water into grape juice? So, I'll let David Guzik answer that question. (laughs) Regarding this, David Guzik says, some go to great lengths to show that what Jesus made here was really grape juice. And yes, there are some Christians that believe this. So some go to great lengths to show that what Jesus made here was really grape juice, while some find that line of thinking convincing, it is not the opinion of the author. Good wine is good wine, not good grape juice. (laughs) It is true that wine in that day, as commonly served, was diluted, two parts wine to three parts water, according to Barclay, and had a much lower content of alcohol than modern wine, but it was still wine. Now, I'm the kind of guy, I like to dig, 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 because you know, I know I have a responsibility to rightly handle the word of truth, and I know I gotta stand before the Lord someday and give an account, and so I'm like, all right, thank you, David Guzik. What does Bible scholar, theologian D.A. Carson say? Well, it's basically the same thing. The wine that was needed was not mere grape juice. The idea is intrinsically silly as applied to countries whose agricultural tradition is so committed to viticulture. On the other hand, wine in the ancient world was diluted with water to between one-third and one-tenth of its fermented strength. Undiluted wine, about the strength of wine today, was viewed as strong drink and earned much more disapprobation. The word disapprobation means strong disapproval. All right, so what does all this mean? It means that Jesus didn't turn water into grape juice. But we should also keep in mind, according to Guzik and Carson and other, there's lots of other Bible scholars, that the alcohol content in the wine back then was much lower than the alcohol content in wine today. I also wanna say this and be really, really clear about this. It's a sin to get drunk. You say, where do you get that from? From Paul's letter to the Christians in Ephesus. Here it is, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with who? The Spirit. Stay with me here, okay? because this is, this is one of the keys to victorious Christian living that I'm talking about right now. And so instead of a person coming under the influence of wine whereby he or she loses control, they really should come under the influence of the Holy Spirit knowing that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And by the way, the Holy Spirit of God can give you way more joy than anything this world has to offer. Way more joy. 
So here's what we, what we should be doing as Christians. We should be surrendering ourselves every single day to the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit of God, asking him to quote unquote fill us. That's a metaphor. What does it mean? That he would influence us, that he would empower us, that he would strengthen us, right? So that we can live in his power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us. And now every single day we're walking, not in perfection, no, but we're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and guess what happens? He's flowing the fruit of the Spirit through us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. You can spot a Christian like that 10 miles away because they're walking with the Lord. And they're walking not in perfection, but they're walking in victory, and they have joy. Well, verse 11 says about this miracle that this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this is his first sign, all right? So what's the purpose of a sign? Well, what's the purpose of all the billboards on I-95 as you're going down the highway? Well, those billboards are supposed to point you to something that they think is important. And so this is what John does throughout his gospel narrative. He gives us eight signs that points us to something very, very important, and that is Jesus' true identity. And so we see that he turns water into wine. He heals the official's son. He heals the crippled man. He feeds 5,000. He walks on water. I mean, who but God can do that? Well, Peter did it because God was telling him to come. <laughs> he heals a man born blind. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And then, of course, the miraculous catch of fish. And so John tells us that the purpose of these signs, what's the purpose of these eight signs? Well, he tells us at the end of his gospel, if you're listening to my voice right now, say amen here. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Last verse. It says in verse 12, after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. I love Capernaum. Capernaum's a very special place for Jesus. If you go with us to Israel, we're gonna take you to Capernaum. At least we're gonna take you to the ruins of Capernaum. And so it's absolutely gorgeous, and it's amazing what they've done um, throughout Israel, but especially in Capernaum. The archeologists have dug down. How many of you guys know the farther you dig down, the farther back in time you go? So they dug down to the first century and they found all these amazing buildings. Now this is actually fourth, third or fourth century Jewish synagogue made of white limestone. But what we're taught, and by the way, I'll point your attention to the woman all the way to the left of your screen. Isn't she beautiful? Um, anyway, uh, so the guide gives us lectures. He tells us about the archeology, span the history, the current events, and then I come and I give the devotion for the spot in Israel. But the last slide I wanna show you guys, we learn in Israel um, that what, what they would often do is they would build a synagogue on top of the ruins of another synagogue. So the synagogue you saw earlier was a third or fourth century 
uh, synagogue made of white limestone, but how many of you guys see the dark stones down there? That's basalt rock, and archeologists believe that's from the first century AD. You build a synagogue on top of a synagogue, and if there's one synagogue, there may have been more, but if there's one synagogue in Capernaum, what does that mean? That means that if those rocks had ears, they could hear Jesus give his sermon that I am the bread of life. Ladies and gentlemen, the rocks in Israel are crying out as to the authenticity of the Old and New Testament that we have. And so it's beautiful, I hope you go with us to Israel sometime, we go every two or three years, we're going next on May 10th through 20th, and so if you wanna go, go to our website, click on missions, or you can talk to Pastor Matt. Matt, please stand up and wave to everybody. You can't miss him with that bright red shirt, and so he would love to tell you all about how to go to Israel with us. We're excited about it, May 10th through 20th, but I'll say in conclusion that Capernaum was located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so one of my favorite times in Israel is when we go to that area of archeological ruins, and when we go out by the Sea of Galilee, it's a big lake, and the guide stands here, and the Sea of Galilee is behind him, and he gives an amazing lecture. And the lecture is all about how on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, that's all Jewish. But on the other side, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, that's made up primarily of Gentiles. And what is Capernaum? Capernaum is the ministry headquarters of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture that Jesus didn't just come for the Jews, he also came for the Gentiles on the other side of the lake. How many of you guys know that God so loved the world? He gave his one and only son. And so, if you wanna put your trust in Jesus, as the Savior and Lord of your life, 